Let's bow our heads as we begin. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this time we have to spend together in the next, uh, this day and, and tomorrow. We thank you for your blessings upon each of our lives. And we only have to look at what you have given us to be grateful. But most of all, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his saving grace, the gift that he gave to us on the cross of Calvary. And we ask now that you would be with us in this breakout session, be with the other sessions as well that are going on. And may we learn more and be drawn closer to you and have a clearer idea how we can bring honor and glory to your name is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, here's, well, I don't know if he's coming. He's been helping. So I'm going to do several things as we talk about community health over the next uh, today and tomorrow. Um, God has given to us a wonderful message of health that needs to be shared with the community. And I want to kind of give a mixture of philosophy on how to share it, some very practical things. Just a very quick um, introduction to myself. Uh, my, the passion in my life is to share the message of Jesus through the ar right arm that he has given to us. Um, some of you, those of you who are a little bit older, uh, may recognize the name Harding. There are actually four Hardings with the E on the end of the name, and that you can distinguish from all the other Hardings um, that have worked for the church or currently work for the church. Um, my dad and his brother, Leslie, my dad was Mervyn, my uncle was Leslie. Leslie was a theologian. My father was, was involved in health. Um, he was a physician. He taught for 48 years at Loma Linda on the faculty there. He was the founding dean of the School of Public Health at Loma Linda. Um, and many people think that because of that connection, I genetically inherited my interest in health. But I did not. And that's probably a good time to disclose, um, disclose that. Um, during my college years, actually previous to going to college, I had felt a call and answered that call to ministry uh, as a 13-year-old boy. And when I was in college, my dad would say to me, Fred, I think you ought to take some sciences because it'll make you a better pastor. I'm very grateful that my parents only told me that I should do what the Lord wanted me to do. Um, they never said, you should be a physician, you should do this, you should do that. My dad's, the, and I still hear it ringing in my ears, when I would ask him what I ought to do in life, he would say to me, Fred, the most important thing is to do what God calls you to do. And if the Lord calls you to be a ditch digger, you dig the straightest ditches in the world. And then he would kind of pause and he would say, but I think that he's given you more ability than digging ditches. But he said, if you dig ditches, you dig straight ditches. <laughs> and he said, you do it with God's, with God's help. So that was the kind of advice and support that I got. So I got full support, um, but I had no interest in taking any sciences. And I would look at my dad and say, you know, that's your thing. Uh, my thing is ministry. That's where the Lord has called me. 
And I respected his call and, and what he was doing. But um, I didn't have any particular interest at all. And it wasn't until I graduated and entered the ministry and the Oregon Conference that the Lord gave me some experiences that we don't have time to talk about here that convinced me that to reach people in the community, I would, be, I would have greater strengths if I had some knowledge of health. And so that began a, a, a detour, not really a detour, it was part of my training, um, but I determined that I would, would go and get some training in health um, which I did. I had to make up a lot of pre, uh, science prerequisites uh, along the way. The Lord helped me with that. It opened a whole new world to me, a world of thinking, a world of, of how it just, it just radically changed and enriched uh, my ministry. And I went to School of Health at Loma Linda, planning to take a master's in public health in one year and then go back and do ministry, which the Lord had called me to do. But along that way, the uh, Lord offered me a scholarship to get my doctorate. And I, my wife and I prayed about it and decided that we should take advantage of that. And so I did that, got a master's in nutrition as well, and became a registered dietitian after I finished which I had never thought I would ever do. Uh, but it has all been very, very useful to me in my ministry. Many people were shocked that when I graduated with my doctorate that I would go back and pastor, but that's exactly what I did because that's where God had called me. I learned a great deal. Um, spent seven years in the local church that so was called to the conference uh, as health ministries director. And from there we went to the Philippines and later we went to the Far Eastern, what was then the Far Eastern Division in Singapore. And uh, then we came back to this country and I pastored, which was a shock to everybody. Uh, but I enjoyed it. And from there, I was called to Upper Columbia Conference in Yakima, where at that time the conference was running a lifestyle center as the director of the lifestyle center. And I was there for 10 years uh, in Yakima and uh, had a wonderful time, was challenged, never worked so hard in my life, uh, had many challenges that we faced. The conference told me there was a small problem of finances when they gave me the call uh, with the institution and they thought it was around $35,000 in debt and I said to myself, ah, 35,000, we can handle that with God's help. When I got all the numbers together, um, and I didn't tell you this, but when I was in college, not only did my father encourage me to take science, which I didn't want to do, he also said to me all along, he said, if you're going to be a pastor, you need to read a, you need to read a balance sheet. So he said, you need to take some accounting. So when I was in college, I actually got a double major in accounting and theology, which is a strange mixture. Uh, but it has served me very well. I've never worked as an accountant but I have been able to read balance sheets and financial statements. And it has been extremely helpful to me. Anyway, when I got there, I realized they had, their finances were, they didn't even know where they were um, when I got to this institution. 
And when I pulled it all together, uh, instead of being 35000 we were almost $400,000 in debt. It was a small institution. We struggled for 10 years. Um, we were in a building that was not really satisfactory for a lifestyle center, maybe in a previous era, but not in that era. And I can illustrate that best by simply saying we had no private bathrooms. And if you stopped along the highway to take a motel and the guy at the desk said, by the way, you're going to share your bathroom, most likely you'd just turn around and go down the road, find another one today. And that's the way most people responded when they asked if there were private bathrooms. And we had to be honest with them and say, I'm sorry, but you'll share a bathroom. And uh, there was almost no recovery from that in terms of marketing uh, the program. So we had some challenges. Uh, we had wonderful experiences. And uh, the Lord used that opportunity to just confirm in my own mind and strengthen the value of lifestyle choices and how it can help people who are struggling with health problems. And I had been doing that in community health education, but in a lifestyle center setting, it gave me a little different perspective. And um, then uh, after that, we were called to the conference office in Spokane, Upper Columbia Conference, to be health ministries director. And I was there thinking that I would retire um, quietly in the Northwest when five years ago we received the call to the General Conference. And uh, I now went from being home almost every night of the year to uh, being gone from home 230 days a year. Um, I've just been home for five days, having come back from India, was home three days from uh, another two and a half week trip in, in Scandinavia and the Baltic countries. Uh, so that kind of just gives you a little picture of, of the life that uh, the Lord has called us to right now. I'm very, very grateful. I could not have done this if I had children at home. Um, I would not have done it if I had had children at home. Uh, it's too long for a father to be away from home. It's too long for a husband to be away too. But I have a wonderful wife who says, when the call came to us five years ago, she said to me, Fred, I think the Lord has been preparing for you, you for this for your entire career, and I support you you need to accept it. And she has part of my ministry and part of that ministry is being supportive and understanding that right now I'm gone two thirds of the year. And uh, it's not easy to leave her at home. Um, I'm very grateful that the Lord has called my son uh, back to the general conference. I can hardly believe it. He's been with the North Pacific Union and now he's and just joined the communications department at the General Conference. So we're going to have two grandchildren and, uh, and a son and a daughter-in-law four miles from where we live. And we look forward to that very much. Anyway, now you know a little bit about the family. I have a daughter. She's the eldest child. She's a nurse. And uh, she's married to a, a, a small-town dentist 
who, uh, if you ask him what he loves about his work, will tell you stories that, that his favorite experiences in his dentistry are when, and he just told us this the other day on the phone, um, but it, it, it communicates what his values are. Um, he said a, a mother brought in a developmentally disabled child with Down syndrome and uh, he had a toothache and was really, really in pain. And uh, she said to the, his receptionist, he, she said, I need help. I've never been here before. My son is in great pain. Can the dentist see him? And she said, I'm a single mother and I have no, I really have no income. And she said, I don't know, but she said, I'll pay $5 a month until it's paid off. Would he see you? And the receptionist knows him well. And so he took care of, he saw the boy and, and did what was necessary. And, and uh, of course, he was a much happier camper as a result of that. And uh, the mother then asked if she could talk to him. And she said, I, I, your, sec your receptionist said, but I just want to thank you and just want you to know that I'll take care of $5 a month. That's the most I can do uh, until we've taken care of this. She said, I don't know how much the bill is, but she said, you let me know and we'll take care of it. And he looked at her and he said, there's nothing. And so we're very grateful that we have a very loving son-in-law who loves people and loves the Lord and seeks to serve him. In, and the Lord has just really blessed his practice, so we're very grateful for that. They live in North Carolina. So we're now a family on the East Coast. My life has been devoted to community health education. I have had some time at Philippine Union College on the faculty there in the School of Public Health teaching uh, community health education, but that's really where my passion is, not just to help people feel better, but to help people, to introduce people to the love of Jesus Christ. Because the right arm of the message, we are told, will reach people that will reach others in no other way. And that is certainly the case. And I'll share a few stories with you as we, as we go along. But I want to just talk to begin with about the scientific support for the Adventist health message. We live in a day and age where many young people, today especially, young people are questioning, and actually older people, the validity and the value of the Adventist health message. Do you know God gave us a precious gift when he gave us this message. So we'll go through just a few things. Of course, it's not complete. We don't have time for that. But I would like to ask you the question as we begin, what is the health message? And I would submit to you this morning that the health message is not just a set of scientifically established health principles and practices that will prolong and preserve life it is profoundly more important than its component parts of balanced nutrition, exercise, rest, temperance, all the other things that we use to describe this message of health. 
it can do far more than modern science has ever discovered. It's more than science. The health, the health message, when rightly understood and linked with Scripture, and the God of Scripture, can restore the dead to life. And you say, wait a minute. What does it have to do with restoring the dead to life? I'm going to come back to that. Sabbath morning for the worship service, I'm actually going to focus on that particular aspect. But if we confine any part of the health message merely to its scientifically validated facts, we've tragically shortchanged the message that God has given us. And maybe people will live a little longer because of the things they learn and what we do, our associations, classes, or whatever, but they will miss out on the eternal benefits that only come from Jesus. So let's talk just for a moment about rest. You know, as Seventh Heavens, we're well known for our interest in diet, and that's good to a point. <laughs> we may not be known for our exercise, even though that's an important component of health. I often shake my head in amazement in that I have never seen any church anywhere quarrel over exercise or sleep, but they can sure quarrel over diet. Well, we'll talk a little more about that after lunch today. But let's look at rest. Ellen White told us many years ago, unreasonable hours are destructive to the physical, the mental, and the moral powers. If the brain were given proper periods of rest, the thoughts would be clear and sharp and business would be expedited. We say, well, okay, rest, we all sleep. Every night I go to sleep. What difference does it really make? She also said, you are God's workmanship and with the full sense of your accountability to God, you are to treat yourselves aright. Give yourselves proper time to sleep. Those who sleep give nature time to build up and repair the waste of the organism. Now, what does science have to say about sleep? I had some very interesting experiences a number of years ago. Um, and I had the opportunity for three years of working for the Federal Aviation Administration as a consultant. You say, what does that have to do with rest and sleep? Well, it actually had a lot to do with it because 70% of all air traffic accidents are determined to be pilot error. And pilot error, I mean, that means when you eliminate mechanical failures, weather problems, everything else, it's a decision the pilot made that got the plane into trouble. Most of those are not tragic. They're just, you know, um, various kinds and degrees of air traffic incidents. But there are, of course, the big, the big ones that are very tragic and cost many lives. And in the process of working for them, and that came about because conference president said, I have a job for you, and then he never contacted me again um, for three years. And I had one child in academy and one in college, and some heavy responsibilities at that time in terms of the family. And the Lord opened this door for me to work for the Federal Aviation Administration. It was the most remarkable leading of the Lord 
And my job was to research all the published data on sleep and cognitive performance. I want to just share with you very briefly a little bit of what, what I learned. So Dr. Gregory Belinke, he's now in Spokane, Washington, uh, retired from the military, worked for Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. He's a psychiatrist, has spent his life studying sleep and cognitive performance. And he was at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. And of course, the Army has recognized for many years that a tired soldier is an, ineffect an ineffective soldier. An arrested soldier is a, a much more effective fighting machine, if you will. I mean, that's from the perspective of the military. And of course, the questions the researchers have asked is why? And that's where, what Dr. Belinke was asking and studying. And he designed a study that it's a classic study today. It's been duplicated in a number of laboratories, a very complex one. He took a group of individuals, male and female, put them in a retreat center. Uh, they had wonderful accommodations. They had great intellectual stimulation. They had good food. They had plenty of opportunity for exercise, and they had opportunity for good sleep. They were there for two weeks, and they were monitored 24 hours by a day with, for their EEG recordings, their electroencephalographic recordings of brainwaves were being recorded on a little device that they wore on the belt that was about this size, and 24 hours a day. The reason for that is he wanted to determine that they were fully rested. And after two weeks, they were all fully rested, and he awakened them at 6 in the morning, and at 8 o'clock in the morning, took them to the laboratory, and they, they did a PET scan of each individual. Those of you who know anything about scanning technology know that you can look at living tissue in a non-invasive way um, in very, very thin slices in any plane that you choose. They analyzed over 3,500 slices of each of these subjects' brains. Um, and I'm going to put on the screen here just one image. This represents one slice. It's a sagittal slice down through the center of the brain, um, not quite in the center, so you can, you can recognize it. And um, you can see right here that, and I realize it's not real clear. We have a lot, a lot of light in this room, um, but we'll do the best we can. And I think you can see it very clearly. Um, this is the frontal lobes. This is where we do our thinking. It's the highest order mental processing that takes place in humans. It is unique in that no other created animal in the world has a frontal lobe that's as large um, as the humans is. This, of course, is back here at the back of the head. This is the visual cortex. This is actually where you perceive what you see. The color represents blood flow. Um, neuroscientists call it brain activation. It's directly related to the amount of blood that is circulating in those tissues. And the PET scan represents that. So the brighter the color, the more the blood flow. All of the brain in these rested individuals was getting adequate blood flow, but you can see there was a lot of yellow up here. And of course, in the whole brain, there was a great deal of the bright purple and the gray blue represented the areas of lower blood flow. He then took the same individuals and for one week, 
lived in the same retreat center, but this time every night he intentionally disturbed their sleep. So large dogs were allowed to run down the hallways at one or two in the morning barking. Knocks on the door occurred. And when sleepy individual came to the door, nobody was there. Uh, fire alarm was rung. Everybody had to be accounted for outside. Then they were told they could go back. All kinds of creative things to disturb their sleep. Um, part of that disturbance was to go to bed a little later, get up a little earlier. Um, all kinds of things they did. Uh, they had alarm clocks that they could set, and then it, didn't, it rang earlier than was set. And I mean, it was a very carefully thought out uh, protocol that resulted in a net loss for one week of eight to 10 hours of sleep compared to their usual state of being rested. For every hour of sleep that we miss, we develop one hour of sleep debt. It's like if you uh, overspend your checking account, I mean, banks don't like you to do this, uh, you end up having to go into debt. We go into debt, and that's why it's called sleep debt, for every hour of sleep that we miss. And it has significant impact on our performance cognitively. But back to Belenke's study, at the end of one week, with eight to 10 hours, he was, uh, again awakened these subjects at eight in the morning, uh, six in the morning, and at eight o'clock did the same tests. You don't have to be a neuroscientist to see the difference. And I'll just put, change the slide, and you can see almost all the yellow is gone. There's far less of the bright purple and a lot more of the blue-gray color, indicating that there was less blood supply to those tissues. The portion of the brain that took the greatest hit was the frontal lobes, and that's where we carry out our highest order thinking. And Dr. Belenke said in his first, in, his, in an early publication about this research, he said that fatigue selectively targets the highest order of cognitive mental functions. Critical thinking becomes impossible, and that's not criticizing our neighbors or family members. That's the highest order processes, and that's the, the very positive use of the word critical. We all need these critical skills in order to live life successfully. I often have students say to me, what's the most single most important ingredient to a successful life or career? And the first time I was asked it, I wasn't quite sure how to answer that, but I have done a lot of thinking about it and I have decided there's a single word, actually two words or three words, that describe success or failure in life. And that's the quality of choices that we make the quality of the decisions that we make. Everything in life is determined on the decisions that you and I make. And if we don't have all of our mental faculties, we're not going to make good decisions. And that's what Dr. Belenke was saying. The high order mental functions are today more frequently referred to as executive functions. There are five of them. Um, the first is the ability to discern. You have no choice to make if you have no options. But if you think about it, every moment of every day in life provides you opportunities and options. You never have, you really never have only one choice. You always have many more than that. When you're tired, you do not see all of the choices that are available to you. You basically develop tunnel vision. 
And there may be choices over here and choices over here and here and here and here and here and, you know, all around you. And when you're tired, you may only see two or three right in front of you. And when you're tired and you only see one or two or three choices, those are the only ones you consider. When the best one may be over here or it may be over here or it may be behind you. Rested people see far more options when they are considering and exercising discernment, when they're considering uh, what they need to be doing. The next step in decision-making or in the executive function is that of judgment. Judgment is where we look at the options and we combine our learned experience, our, our learned knowledge, our experiences of life, and we evaluate the options and say which is the best one to act on. That's the process of judgment or evaluation. Initiative is the ability to start acting on something that we know we need to be doing. And tired people may be able to discern some options and evaluate those options and know which of those options is the best, but they will not start acting on that option because they're tired. You know, it's not really hard to think of some common examples of that. You men, you drive home at long day, you've been working, you're tired, you see the grass is, you know, in desperate need of mowing. The option is there. You've evaluated it. You know it needs to be done. And, I mean, it's even the little things, whether it's the shoes being polished or whatever. And you say, oh, I'm tired. And the typical, this may not be described you folks here, but the typical male in our society today goes in and says, my day is done. I need rest and plops himself on the sofa or his easy chair and turns on the television and does not mow the lawn. Um, if you could turn that circumstances around in terms of time and that person drove into the driveway in the morning fully rested, high, much higher chance that they would simply go in, change their clothes, and begin mowing the lawn. Same thing happens with laundry, ironing, dirty clothes, um, dirty dishes, uh, it, it affects males and females equally. Tired students do not do their assignments in a prompt way and as a result suffer. They know, they've evaluated, but the initiative just isn't there when they're tired. Next higher order mental process is creativity. Creativity is the ability to look at a problem and see and find a solution. Creativity is more than the expression of artistic talent. All of us, doesn't matter what our job is or if you're in school and a student, you need to exercise creativity. And the more tired you get, the less creativity you have. It's, very, it's well established in the literature. And then forethought is the ability to do something now that will save time in the future. People who are tired are not efficient. It takes them longer to do everything in life. 
everything in their world because they do not have full function of forethought. These five executive functions combined together result in our decision-making capacity. They influence the quality of the decisions that we make. And in turn, over time, it influences our success or failure in life. Now, I'm very concerned about some current trends in our society today. I don't know if you've ever seen anything like this. Um, I haven't seen it in the file drawer, but I've seen it at the desk. Um, What's going on? Adults in our society today sleep one and a half hours less per day than did our grandparents. Now I know you can tell me there are all kinds of things that compete for sleep. The problem is that these things are competing for time that was traditionally reserved for sleep. And we're suffering as a result of that. Of even greater concern is that teens today are sleeping two and a half hours less than they did in 1962. You say, well, how did you determine 1962? Well, since 1912, there has been an accumulating database of average sleep in America that has been kept at Columbia University. Uh, it's a very valuable and interesting database. So, Today, we are not getting the sleep that we need. And teens especially, who actually need more sleep than preteens and postteens, which they do not want to admit to, but which is true, and there's lots of evidence to support that, are getting less sleep than they need. So our executive functions are at risk when we don't sleep. And uh, our attention, our complex planning, our complex mental operations, and our judgment are all impaired significantly. Now, we could talk a long time about this, but I just share with you just a little bit in support of what Ellen White talked about and told, our, told us that we needed good sleep, and it was an important part of the health message. Now, kind of bring this home let me ask you a question. Which is better, being tired or drunk? You may never have thought about that question. Because you, as Seventh-day Adventists, don't drink. You probably have never had any alcohol. You, do, you believe firmly in that. And we look down our long pointy noses sometimes at those who do drink and get behind the wheel of a car. But in reality... There's very little difference between being tired and drunk. And I have to admit, I think back to when we had small children at home and we'd go on vacation. And, you know, you get tired of hearing, Daddy, when are we going to get there? And so if they will go to sleep in the back seat and you drive at night, you don't hear all those questions. And um, some parents think that that's an easier but they don't think about the safety. The reality today is that when you have been awake for 16 to 18 hours, you have a performance that is comparable to somebody who has had just has had one to three beers and is fully rested. 
a blood alcohol level of 0.08, which is the legal level of intoxication in every state in the United States and in many parts of the world, 16 to 18 hours of wakefulness, you have the similar level of performance. And so you are putting not only your family and yourself, but others at risk. You see, in the old days, when we rode horses and you went to sleep riding the horse, you fell off the horse. And you might have been bruised and damaged a little bit, but the horse got home. Today, when we fall asleep driving our four-wheeled iron horses, we place not only ourselves, but others at significant risk. And um, we don't get home either. Interestingly, there's increasing evidence, probably for the last 30 years, the focus of research has been on sleep and cognitive performance, the function of the mind. However, today we now recognize that loss of sleep is probably a major contributing factor to the obesity epidemic of this country and probably the rest of the world. We know that it contributes to poor glycemic control in diabetics. Um, it contributes to metabolic syndrome. Uh, we actually know today, and Dr. Belinke is one of the leaders in this research, he's turned his focus a little differently uh, in his laboratories. There is a, there is a neurohormone that produced, that's produced in the brain called leptin. Leptin got everybody excited a few years ago when it was discovered because it had the impact, it had the effect of lowering appetite and giving greater satiety to the meals that we ate. And of course the industry thought, wow, we can purify it, put it in a pill, and we can have an anti-obesity tablet. But it doesn't work as easily as that. And there is no leptin pill available today. Um, and there probably never will be. But as in almost everything in human physiology, there are antagonists. There are the agonists and the antagonists. And leptin is an agonist, and there is an antagonist called ghrelin. And ghrelin is also a neurohormone produced in the brain, and it increases appetite and decreases satiety, that is, the feelings of satisfaction from the food that we eat. When we're tired, the cells that produce leptin and ghrelin, and they're the same ones, Actually, when we're tired, they produce more ghrelin and less leptin. The genes are altered in those cells. And we see an upregulation of ghrelin and a downregulation of leptin. When we're rested, we see a downregulation of ghrelin and an upregulation of leptin. And that it is probably through that and maybe other mechanisms that fatigue is a major risk factor or obesity in our country today and, and around the world. We know from large epidemiological studies that long-term sleep deprivation increases cardiovascular risk as well as cancer risk of a number of cancer-specific ones. And we're seeing an increasing amount of research uh, that is now strongly suggesting that depression and other mental health problems may be associated with loss of sleep on a chronic and regular basis. Just read a 
study about six weeks ago, was published six weeks ago, I read it about two weeks ago, um, in which kids with ADHD do better when they get more sleep. It's a simple thing. It's far better than the, the medications that are often used, although sometimes may, those may be necessary. But the behaviors are much improved when they get enough sleep. And we live in a day and age where everything is fighting against getting good sleep, even for the young ones. You know, whether it be our, you know, all of our electronic devices, and now we're concerned about the, we have growing concerns about the blue light and its impact on particularly melatonin's production uh, in the brain, which helps to uh, induce and pattern a good night's recuperative sleep. Uh, we can talk a lot more about these things, but we need to move on. Um, I'm actually a little bit behind. Um, I love this statement Ellen White made. The human body may be compared to nicely adjusted machinery, which needs care to keep it in running order. One part should not be subjected to constant wear and pressure while another part is resting from inaction. While the mind is taxed, the muscles also should have their proportion of exercise. They should go out and exercise every day. Today we're hearing a new term, sitting disease. And we're seeing some data. It's fairly early. We're not exactly sure um, how, it, how all of the pieces fit together. But those who sit more have higher risks of cancer and cardiovascular disease. There's little question about that. Um, and of course, we live in an increasingly sedentary society. Uh, those of you who are older have children. You want them to get a good education so they can have a good career. We know that that's an essential part of, of, of career management. And yet today, there's really hardly any career that an educated person fulfills that doesn't require a computer and sitting for hours by that computer or in front of it. I think about my own life. Um, it's changed dramatically from what it was 35 years ago when I entered the work. Um, when I began traveling in the local conference, my secretary gave me you know, a stack of a folder full of letters and I would dictate those on a machine. And when I got home, I'd give the tape, tape to her and she would transcribe them and we'd get them off. <coughs> totally changed. I can type. I frustrate my secretary right now because I actually type faster than she does, which I'm very grateful for. And she says to me, why don't you just, why don't you just write it out and then I'll put it on an email. And I said, by the time I write it out, you can't read it because my handwriting is not good. I did not do well in penmanship. It's faster for me to just sit down and answer it. And I rarely send anything by mail anymore. It all goes by electronically. The world has changed. But computers are an essential component of that. You have to sit in front of them to do it. I used to walk and dictate letters. Can't do that. I, I, I know. I see kids now. In fact, there's an amazing number of accidents that are occurring because of especially young people but they're the ones that do texting more than the older population, 
who are actually walking down the street. I actually had a woman bump into me in Malmo, Sweden, um, about uh, uh, probably about six weeks ago now. Uh, I was walking down, minding my own, down the sidewalk, minding my own business, and boom, she ran into me from the side. And she was there on her phone texting while she was walking. Um, anyway, we have to be intentional about our physical activity. And today we know that inactivity is a huge risk factor for many diseases. Let, let's just look at this very quickly. If we look at death rates by fitness level, what we see here is we've divided, this is a large study that took age group men actually um, and uh, so the first group that was looked at was 60 to 69 year olds. They looked at others, but I've just put these three groups, 70 to 79 year old and 80 plus. Now the red line bars represent those who were in the lowest fitness, the medium, medium fitness, and the high fitness group was the green. Now to be in the high fitness group, you did not have to run. Those were considered the outliers. You could do it by walking, swimming, or, or moderate exercise, basically, which is good news for all of us. Um, you don't have to run to be in the high fitness group. Now, you can see that in each group, those who were in the low fitness group had the highest death rate. And the reason this increases is, of course, age is increasing, and death rates increase with age anyway. But what's most interesting to me is that the benefit of moderate fitness or high fitness is significant in each age category, especially in the 80 plus category. Um, and if you look at this arrow, those who were 60 to 69 and in the unfit group, actually 20 years earlier, had a higher death rate than those who were physically fit but 80 or older. So, Fitness is very important. And Ellen White talked to us many years ago about the importance of fitness. We look at hypertension risk, and this was a different study, but, whoops, sorry. Um, hypertension, and this was in all ages, um, was much greater in those who were in the low fitness group versus the high fitness group. Diabetes 2 risk, same thing. And even small amounts of exercise, sorry, let me go back to the, yeah. Small amounts of exercise. So you see, going from a low fitness to a medium fitness group halves the risk. And we, we, we need to not forget that important distinction. It doesn't take much to get huge benefit. Uh, being in the high fitness group almost 25% or 75% lower risk. Um, diabetes, very similar. Problem is, most people today want to get their exercise this way. Um, I was, I was uh, in late November last year in Rio de Janeiro for some meetings and I was walking along the beach one morning and uh, I was amazed. It wasn't this picture but a man came along on his motorcycle and his dog was leading the motorcycle. Uh, dog was getting exercise. It's funny how we recognize our pets need exercise, but we ourselves may not, or, or we sometimes think that. And 
Unfortunately, the most frequent reason given for not being more physically active is simply lack of time. That's the excuse. We don't have time. And yet I love this cartoon. What the doctor's talking to his patient and the doctor says, what fits your busy schedule better, exercising 30 minutes a day or being dead 24 hours a day? Um, it, it really brings it into perspective. And um, I, I, this is very interesting. And it's a good segue as we go into looking at, at some other issues related to health. But we all know that as we get older, we develop disabilities. I am in my mid-60s today. I cannot do what I did when I was 25 years old. I wish I could. And I often tell my wife when I wake up in the morning and I'm laying in bed, I think I can. But as soon as my feet hit the floor, I realize I can't do what I used to do. Um, and that's a part of growing older. And yes, with exercise and other things, we can help to prevent and decrease the losses, but there is always some loss. And in this study, the investigators looked at what they called excess disability, that is more than the average. And they attributed it to, to different categories of lifestyle habits. And you can see that 24% was to low fruits and vegetables, 26% to smoking, and low physical activity accounted for 72% of that excess disability. So your physical fitness at 45 is probably the best determinant of your ability to carry out activities of daily living when you're 75 years old. Um, it's very important. Healthy behaviors and cardiovascular disease, this is a very interesting study because, again, sometimes we say health is only diet. No, it's far more than diet. There's a huge picture, a constellation of habits and, and choices that we make that determine our overall health and our risk. Um, they looked at people who had four healthy behaviors. Those four healthy behaviors, and you might not define them all the same way, but they were non-smokers, physically active, not heavy drinkers, and ate more plant foods, fruits, and vegetables. And what you're seeing here is that those who had zero of these healthy behaviors had the highest risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, those who had one, and it didn't matter which one. That's the amazing thing. You know, it, some, some people here in this group, and they, it, you know, it was two-thirds risk less. The risk was down by one-third. Um, some of them didn't smoke. Some of them physically active. Some ate healthfully. And, um, you know, we can talk another time about the drinking issue because that has become extremely clear in the last six weeks with a major publication in the British Medical Journal and the cardioprotective benefits of, of alcohol are are pretty much disproved, moderate amounts of alcohol. And that's why this not being a heavy drinker is there. But if they added one more health habit, it didn't matter which one, their risk of cardiovascular disease was cut in half. If they had all four, it was about 75% less. So the choices that we make in life in every area have an impact on our health. Cancer, same study, but now looking at cancer, same four healthy behaviors. Um, the, the impact of even one healthy behavior was huge in terms of cancer risk. 
cutting the risk by about half. And today, of course, we know that a healthy diet is very important, and I've deliberately brought diet in toward the end because so often we focus on diet. And I'm a nutritionist, and I love the study of nutrition. I believe diet is very important. But I have many people say to me, well, is it more important to exercise or to, or to eat well? And I really have an answer for that, and that is I ask them the question, would you love, rather live without your heart or your brain? Think about it. Would you live better without a brain or better without a heart? You need both. You need both. We need exercise. We need rest. We need all the other good things along with a healthy diet. And today, of course, we know that there are huge advantages to a vegetarian diet. And uh, we need to be educating our young people more clearly in that. Uh, because I think we've seen some slippage um, in that area. Uh, and there are just huge advantages for a healthy vegetarian diet. Today, the world is recognizing that. And around the world where I travel, more and more governments and other NGOs and agencies that are making dietary recommendations are using ver verbiage like this. Use plant foods as the foundation of your meals. Eating a variety of grains, especially whole grains, fruits and vegetables, is the basis of healthy eating. And that's what we've been told as a church for decades. Um, I want to just conclude here with the geriatric curve. Um, you may never have heard of this term, but you all recognize, as we already mentioned, that as we get older, function diminishes. And so basically we're looking at life, and the, these investigators looked at life from birth to death in terms of function, and they compared a high-risk lifestyle with a low-risk lifestyle. And they defined their high-risk lifestyle as being smokers, inactivity, and being overweight and obese. Simple definition of a high-risk lifestyle. Not a very complex one. And the low-risk lifestyle was the opposite of that. Well, we'll come to that in a moment. What they found was that at birth, and shortly, you know, a number of years later, by the time we reach about 35, it's, after you've reached 35, it's a downhill journey in terms of function. Um, you can flatten that curve, and we'll see that in a moment, but if you live the average lifestyle, you're going to see increasing disability until death occurs. And you see people who have long, drawn-out, difficult last years of their lives. My wife is a geriatric nurse. She takes care, her youngest client is 85 years old. Her oldest is 102. Um, and some require a lot more of her attention than others. Uh, some she has to visit weekly. She works with them. She takes them to the doctor, seems like almost every week. Um, they're sick, but they're alive. Their function is very limited. All of them have 24-hour day caregivers. Um, and uh, so they're, they're down in this area of life. Now, this study and the investigators then looked at the low-risk lifestyle, and they found that those who were involved in a low-risk lifestyle had a curve like that. 
And that's why they called it squaring off life. Um, so you can see the difference. And they basically said that the high-risk lifestyle created this impaired period of survival. And it's our choice. The choices we make today determine whether we're going to square off life or whether we're going to have that impaired survival. It's really that simple. And uh, it's a powerful study that illustrates the importance of the choices that we make. Now, you've all known people, especially at Seventh-day Adventists. We've known people who have been bright, active, into their 90s. And then all of a sudden, it seems like they get sick. Something happens, break a hip, fall, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Uh, many different things cause it. And they go downhill so quickly, and they're gone. And we say, wow, which way would you rather die? Squared off? Or with that long, slow decline? I know which way I would prefer. Now, in the, in, the, in, the, in the legal field, there's a concept called willful blindness. And it basically is a legal concept that refers to information that we should know or that we could know, but somehow we manage not to know it. And I ask the question, is ignorance really bliss? Can you go to the judge and say, you know, I just didn't know that. I didn't know that was illegal. It usually doesn't get you very far. And in health, it doesn't either. I was at a conference recently and, uh, as one of the speakers. Um, and somebody I have known for many, many years. And we had a wonderful time visiting and catching up. And then he said to me, I'm not coming to your seminar. And I said, oh, really? Why not? And he said, because if I come to yours, I'll have to make changes in my lifestyle. He said, I just don't want to know. Well, I have to tell you, I think he was willfully blind. But Ellen White talked about people like that when she said many are so devoted to temper intemperance that they will not change their course of indulging in gluttony under any conditions. They would sooner sacrifice health and die prematurely than to restrain their intemperate appetite. Our mission as Seventh-day Adventists is to combine the message of health with the gospel message. If we fail to do that, it will lose its power. If a person attends a health program in a Seventh-day Adventist church and he understands and applies the principles, they may gain a few years of life. But if they did not learn that the power to change comes from Jesus, they will lose out on eternal life. Jesus is the life giver. By the way, James says that works without faith is dead. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that science without faith is dead also. We're not to separate the gospel from health. The health-promoting effects of the health message have been confirmed by science, but today's most skillful and perceptive scientists cannot bring the dead to life. Only Jesus 
can do that. Okay. God has really been good to us. Uh, maybe I'll just, and I know we've got a few moments, and then we'll start the next session. Um, and I have a, a slightly different topic I want to talk about. But I saw some interest in when I mentioned about the alcohol and moderate drinking. We've gone through 30 years of recommendations of moderate drinking. Um, you know, I'm not blessed with having a Seventh-day Adventist physician back in Maryland. There are no primary care physicians who are Adventists in where I live. Uh, I'm very disappointed about that. I go to a wonderful Jewish physician. And uh, he's not pushing anything, but he was surprised that I did not drink alcohol. Espe moderately. Especially because I was involved in health. And I said, no, I'm a teetotaler all of my life. And I choose not to. What's going on there? Well, it all started with the French paradox, which was publicized on 60 Minutes back in the mid-80s, um, in which the observation was made that in France they drank red wine, they ate a high-fat diet, but they had less heart disease than Americans did. And hence the French paradox. It was a paradoxical uh, observation. Much research went into that. Many people, and we heard it throughout the church, and I still hear it today, it's the, it's the re reversitrol that's in the, in the red grape juice that makes the difference. Well, that was an early thought, but it's still stuck uh, in some people's minds. That is not the case uh, because, or at least I've always felt, unfortunately, not only was the use of wine seemingly cardioprotective, cardio but the use of beer was also, and the use of distilled spirits was also. And what we know now today is that the fermentation process, the longer that the, longer that the wine is fermented, the less the reversitrol there is in the wine. Now, the red grape juice, of course, is the strongest, but it is probably not what gives the cardioprotective benefits. And the famous J-shaped, infamous, if you will, J-shaped curve, which we talked a great deal about, was showed that those who used one to two drinks a day had less heart disease than those who used none. And then, of course, on the other side of the curve, once they passed two drinks a day, cardiovascular disease went up. So there seemed to be this sweet spot illustrated by this J-shaped curve. And a lot of us at Seventh-day Adventists said, what's going on? I mean, Ellen White, the Bible makes it so clear that we should not be drinking alcohol. And, of course, I think for most of us, we believe that. We didn't understand. And for me, probably the biggest reason I chose not to begin drinking alcohol, because we, we, un, we understand the impact of alcohol on the function of the mind. And God calls us to have clear minds 24 hours a day, and we don't need to be clouded, uh, even with small amounts of alcohol. But, you know, there was this issue of the cardioprotection of small amounts of alcohol. Well, a lot of research has gone on. And we've, in the, probably in the last 10 years, because of the research in re relationship to alcohol and breast cancer first, then prostate cancer, and now colon cancer, we began to say, well, it's a matter of picking your poison. You want to die of cancer, 
Uh, drink alcohol if you didn't want to die of heart disease. Uh, I'm sorry, it was the other way around. Um, if, you don't, if you don't want to die of heart disease, drink some alcohol. If you don't want to die of, of uh, cancer, don't drink. And uh, so it's been very confusing. However, there's been growing evidence. Then there's, you know, there are many really outstanding, honest scientists in the world today who even though they may enjoy the, the impact of alcohol and believe that it's okay, still do the research. And there has been growing concern in a number of scientific circles uh, or laboratories. And basically what we've now seen is two things. The confounders were not adequately controlled for. And confounding is a big issue in epidemiology and in, it's a big issue in trying to draw conclusions from data that is observed. And it's basically when you, a confounder, and I'll give you a very simple in, illustration of, the con, of, a, of a confounder. Today you can show that women who wear hose have higher breast cancer than those who do not. You go, wait a minute. Does hose have anything to do with breast cancer? Well, you have to realize when you look at that kind of data, you have to ask some intelligent questions. Which part of the world can women afford to wear hose, purchase and wear hose? What are their lifestyle factors like versus those who can't afford it? So in the world where they don't wear hose, they, they exercise more, they tend to eat a simpler diet, and many other factors, lower fat in their diet. And consequently, they have lower risk of breast cancer. But in, the, in our part of the world, where they can afford hose and they tend to wear hose, we have higher rates of breast cancer. But it has nothing to do with the hose. That's a confounder. The second, the second problem with this data has been that, has been that, um, there's been misclassification. And basically, most of those studies compared non-drinkers with those who drank at different levels. And what has now been discovered is the non-drinking category included a significant number of individuals who had been high drinkers, heavy drinkers, but had quit drinking because they had health problems. And now, because they looked at baseline data only, do you drink or don't you drink? If you drink, how much do you drink? So they lumped all of the non-drinkers together. And if you bring a group of people into one cohort that have disease already, it's going to skew the results. And the British Medical Journal just published the best research to date and it basically, and, and the reviewers have said, it is putting to bed the idea that there is a cardioprotective benefit of alcohol, even in moderate amounts. Because, and that was published in March. And they basically reanalyzed some of the largest studies. And they then classified ever smoker, ever drinkers with non-drinkers and that J-shaped curve disappeared. 
when they took out those who had been heavy drinkers, but now were not drinkers. So the Lord has now is, is using science to confirm his message. And I am concerned um, for other areas in our lifestyle. I just gave a talk at the General Conference on Tuesday um, on this very issue of alcohol, but I also compared it to the issue of caffeine. Uh, today we have less and less concern being expressed in the church about caffeine and its consumption. And we're seeing all kinds of benefits from less diabetes to less dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And I mean, it just goes on and on. And we say, wait a minute. When, she, when Ellen White, the prophet said, touch not, taste not, what's going on here? Well, we had that same information on alcohol. And in time, I have no question that if the Lord tarries, that we will, I mean, and there's many red flags that we see in terms of, of the use of caffeine also. Uh, but the devil is very clever, and these industries have lots of money to promote what they wish in the media, and to get the true story out is sometimes a challenge. But health, the health message has always required faith. And until the Lord comes, we each have to step out in faith and be empowered by God's grace to act on what we believe to be correct. And when we do, he will bless. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.